Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Uh, first things first, got some big news for you. Device Talks Boston. We are holding on May 1st and 2nd, and it is open for registration. Thanks to everyone who's registered already. We just opened the doors, virtual doors, this week. And uh, happy to have folks lining up. But this is an event you're not going to want to miss it's going to be two great days of talking about every aspect of medical device development from investment. We'll have our pals from MedTech Innovator there to product development, to manufacturing, to bringing a product to market. So anything you need to know about bringing, uh, developing, finding investors for, building a medical device, engineering a medical device, getting it into the hands of doctors and, and into a position where it can help patients, we, we are going to help you with that. So uh, make sure you go to boston.devicetalks.com. The agenda is up there. The speaker list is up there. It is growing. That We have probably half of the, uh, of the content we'll have. No, not even true. We're probably about a third of, of the way both ways. But we already have a lot of great names and topics up there. And it's going to continue to grow. So make sure you keep an eye out for that. Make sure you follow me on LinkedIn so you won't miss any updates. I'm not only going to post uh, static graphics about updates and, 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 and pithy little <laughs> pithy little uh, LinkedIn posts, but we'll also have uh, some of the interviews, like the ones we're, uh, we're featuring today on the podcast, that'll sort of uh, set the scene for Device Talks Boston. So I really, really, really hope you'll be there. We had uh, over 1,200 people there last year, and we would love to have many, many, many more than that this year. Uh, we're paired with our Robotics Summit and Expo. That's probably one, two, three, doing the math in my head, three times the size of our event, probably more. So it's going to be thousands and thousands and thousands of people at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. And I hope you will be one of them. Go to boston.devicetalks.com. Uh, register now. You can still, uh, still, obviously, we just opened for registration. The early bird rate is in effect. I don't have an expiration date for that yet. I know it's out there, but um, let's just focus on the now and on the present. Find some time to check out the website and register over the next couple of weeks and you'll be fine. Uh, there's a couple of cool registration, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, networking opportunities. They'll have more details for you if you're registered. I think you'll get some insights on that. Uh, feel free to, if you're registered, DM me d- uh, directly and I'll make sure you're, uh, you're in the loop on that. But uh, we'd love to uh, give folks the opportunity to take part in that as well. And uh, honestly, I'm just uh, really, really pleased with the content we have so far and um, people who are reaching out who want to speak. It's really, uh, it's really great. Some, some top-notch folks. And uh, I'm excited to uh, have them tell their stories at Device Talks Boston. But uh, all right. So today we're uh, talking about uh, startups that are working their way into new markets I spoke with uh, Jan DeBacker. He is the CEO of Fluida. I actually met up Jan. Well, I met Jan a few years ago when we worked on a, on a uh, respiratory event, but uh, connected with him at JP Morgan at a, at a reception uh, sponsored by our friends at Health and Commerce. So thanks to Health and Commerce for, uh, for the invite. And uh, he was sharing his story about how he's, uh, he's got a, a, a fantastic uh, piece of software that can really advanced respiratory um, diagnosis and imaging. And it's just not getting traction that he thinks it should get. And he wants it. Uh, he wants patients to, to have access. So he's doing something really unique. We'll get into that in the podcast. Later on, uh, I spoke with Scott Nelson of uh, Fastwave Medical. Fastwave is in the, uh, the IVL space. It's got a, a market, I'm sorry, a product developing 
to uh, basically uh, compete with Shockwave Medical and others. And uh, I talked with Scott about uh, how Fastwave plans to move into this sector in, in a space that was created by a larger company, a competitor, and uh, how he sees Fastwave building a, a space for itself. So uh, I also talked with, with Scott Fanboyed a bit. He's the uh, host of MedSider podcast, and he's been doing this actually longer than I have. And I uh, got to give him a credit for that because it's not the easiest thing to do. So Scott and I connected on that a little bit. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you later, but the audio, my, my side of the audio messed up. We're using a new platform here and, um, I just didn't read the settings, right? So, uh, so I was using my internal mic and not a, a headset or an enormous microphone like this one when I, uh, when I recorded. So, um, anyway, we'll get through that. You'll get through that. We did the best we could with the audio. You can hear Scott. That's the important part. My questions are not as sharp as they as they typically are, at least in the volume. I hope the intellect is still there. Other than that, all right, well, this, uh, again, this is a, a really great episode. I, I love kind of having Chris and I delve into a certain space with uh, one guest and then having an interview at, at the end. So we're always looking for new takes on on med tech, people who are, who are who are not only developing great new technology, but but have interesting business approaches. So uh, keep us in mind uh, with your storytelling. Chris and I would love to have you on the podcast sometime. All right. That is it for now. Device Talks Boston, once again, is open for registration. Go to boston.devicetalks.com. If you're not following me on LinkedIn, please do so you don't miss a future uh, any updates on some future speakers. And uh, let's get this podcast started. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Chris Newmarko, how are you, sir? Doing well, Tom. Doing well. How are you? Good. I, I think I flubbed my how are you, sir, line. It kind of came out. Or are you, sir? At least in my head. How are you? I just, we're just, it's Friday. We're, we're talking on a Friday morning. It's I'm Friday. Little, I'm a little fuzzy. I get one of those like little slight headaches. You're like, am I just sick? Did I just, am I slightly sick? Did I just kind of have too much toast in the morning? I don't know. Like, I'm just feeling a little fuzzy. So, Especially having little kids. I think I had... Two months where I just woke up every morning saying, I, like, I think I'm sick. But, you know, now <laughs> you probably I, my immune system is finally, you know, it feels like, yeah, I'm done. We're, we're good to go. Let's say it. So I'm feeling, feeling good now. Yeah, Kayleen Brown, our, our managing editor, has a, a little one at home, too, and she's nursing a cold. So it's just a constant state. And I know our guest, Jan DeBacker of, of Florida. Jan, you've got, a, you've got a, a house full of youngins as well, correct? Six years old, four year old, and four months old. So, oh my gosh! Yeah. Congrats! <laughs> thank you, thank you. It's a never a dull moment here in the household. That's for oh, sure. Oh yeah, totally. But you look so healthy and and, and and put together. How do you how do you how do you do it, Jan? What's your oh, secret? A lot of digital filters. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. Jan, your beard's actually white, right? Like you're to totally white hair at this point, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's still gray. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. My beard, I, I came upon a picture from J.P. Morgan that a friend of mine took when I was with him uh, probably eight years ago, and my beard was black. Like, it was black, and now it's not. 
It's really not. So pandemic, right? The pandemic in between and see what happens. I, I feel, yeah. I feel like, you know, Obama after his eight years in the White House, maybe, uh, maybe podcasting <laughs> can be more quickly than I, than I anticipated. Or it could just be getting old. Pod, podcasting and the presidency. There we go. Like, <laughs> <made> you. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> People are clicking off this podcast immediately. Let, we're, we've been, what is going on with these guys? I don't know. <laughs> I met with Jan up. Jan and I have known each other for a few years. He was very kind to help me with a respiratory innovation summit meeting that we that we put together for ATS uh, probably five or years ago or so. And it's wow. happy to say it's still going strong. I, I it's run. I think the week after or before Device Talks Boston, so I never have a chance to go. But it's a, a great space, and actually, I think really relevant space because there's. there's at the time we were putting it together, there was certainly innovation in the respiratory space. But prior to COVID and because of COVID, it really has taken off. So it's a, it's a hot space for tech. And uh, I'm, I'm eager to have Jan here because he's got a, a great technology, but also an interesting business approach that we're going to get into a little bit later. But but first, Jan, just uh, tell folks a little bit about yourself. How, how did you become a, a MedTech CEO? Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to great to be here. So my name is uh, is Jan. Um, I started um, Fluid about almost twenty years ago. So I'm an aerospace engineer by training. Oh. Um, so back then we were using computers to simulate flows. Uh, um, not quite as much AI back then, but already uh, simulations. Um, so I worked for Boeing for a while to develop these drones, unmanned aerial vehicles, and using computational fluid dynamics, which is pretty much the computer methods that allow us to understand how flows behave. And my father is a respiratory physician. So he's a professor in, in Antwerp in Belgium, so where I'm originally from. Um, so about 20 years ago, he said, oh, it's kind of cool. You can simulate flows. Can you also simulate the flow in the lungs? Because huh. at that point in time, he was uh, uh, looking at the effect of, of novel drugs. It was a reviewer for the, the EMA, which is the European equivalent of the FDA. Um, and he said, yeah, it's kind of hard to really understand what's going on in the lungs just using the conventional lung function tests. Wow. Um, what, what did those look like, those conventional lung function tests? What, oh, yeah, so it's, it uh, it's like? kind of a tube, and you blow really hard into a tube, and they measure what comes out. So it's called That's it. a, they just the forced expiratory volume in one second, it's still kind of the gold standard. So if you have a yeah. lung, lung issue that goes down, so you can exhale less air in one second. That's wild because in the, in the movie, the right stuff, you see the astronauts using that back in the 60s and stuff. Yeah, but that, yeah. that's one of the, the things. So the biggest innovation in respiratory, especially around the testing side, happened in the 60s and maybe the 70s. Wow. It was all about the body box and then spirometry and all that stuff. And then almost for 20, 30, 40 years, there was not a lot of innovation in terms of the testing. There was some innovation in terms of the treatments, the inhalers and all that stuff. But the testing is still the same thing. The only thing that they did is they went, the, the field went towards looking at symptoms and looking at exacerbation and hospitalizations. But that was, that's, those are very much derivative parameters from what yeah. actually happens in the lungs. And that was kind of the reason to, to uh, develop newer technology, which was based on imaging. So our technology is, is using imaging, like the CT scan. So you can maybe see behind my head is the, the, the pulmonary vascular system derived oh, from wow. the CT scan. Um, and that brings it really back to the lungs, really. So using the CT scan, you can quantify the anatomical structures. 
So you kind of go beyond the subjective interpretation by a radiologist. So usually if you take a CT scan, it's a, a person, a radiologist that describes in one right. or two lines what they see. What our technology does is we um, convert those 2D CT slices into 3D reconstructions of anatomical structures, airways, blood vessels, wow. bone volumes. And then we use these methods from aerospace engineering to make it functional. So we can look at regional ventilation, the resistances, and we can even look at the deposition of inhaled drugs um, just by using wow. the CT scan. So you don't need to radio label anything or give anything to the patient. You just use their, their very quick low-dose CT scans. And the imaging is 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 pretty amazing. I, I, the folks should follow you on on LinkedIn. You post it from time to time, and just the colors and the and the the detail is really uh, quite actually quite pretty. Uh, you could it, it, it's it's a, it's a piece of art in some regard. I think. Yeah, it's kind of science meets art a little bit. So, yeah. but it also kind of. Um, makes things more tangible. So if you have a patient with a lot of emphysema, for instance, a smoker, then you can really see the destruction of the, the tissue in those local areas. You can see how the blood vessels are affected and you can see if, the, if those areas are well or poorly ventilated. So it becomes much more intuitive to understand what is the best course of action for this patient. So if there's not a lot of blood vessels left in certain areas of the lungs, you can do pretty much whatever you want, but the oxygen is not going to be taken up by the blood because there's mm -hmm. simply no blood flow in those parts wow. of the lungs. So they're pretty much dead. So you have to make sure that you, you use them as less as you can or uh, and just redirect the air to other areas in the lungs so it becomes uh, much easier i would say to kind of to select the right treatment and get rid of the trial and error which is quite costly and then not so nice for the patient so where when when you were developing this and, and now where does this fit in, in the treatment paradigm who is who is using this who are the patients who need it and who would a customer be for it? Who right. would be who would be paying you? Yeah, so we started about twenty years ago, almost, um, and so a little bit by accident, we um, approached pharmaceutical companies to use the technology as endpoints in their clinical trials. Hmm. So usually, if you develop a new drug, you you take a measurement at baseline, you give the drug, and then you see what happens to those lungs. Um, so for the last two decades, we've been working a lot with pharmaceutical companies, and that works really well. So they the, the, they get to see much more detail about what their drug is doing, um, so they can um, de-risk the development process. Um, we're also very close to um, to getting. Uh, FDA acceptance for the use in, in bioequivalence trials to test generics versus uh, branded products. Hmm. Uh, so there's okay. a lot of movement there. It kind of um, goes into the direction of digital twins and in silico trials. So kind of what you're doing is because you use the image and then you make it digital, you have a digital twin of your, uh, your patient. So with the digital twin of the patient, you can then um, do virtual clinical trials, which is kind of cool because you don't have to uh, um, test on humans. And that sure. technology yeah. is really more and more advanced. So that goes really well. So um, 
nice, nice business, we're growing, etc. Where it is much yeah. more difficult is to go into the hospitals. That's a different story. That's interesting. So, I mean, you've got, you know, you've, it, you've, you've had success with like partnerships with pharmaceutical companies, which, which I, I think that's actually interesting too, because it's, I can see pharma doing more and more with med tech over the, over the past decade. Um, but, but it's the health providers that where it's more of a challenge. I mean, tell, tell us more about that. Yeah. So I think about a couple of years ago, it was just, just before COVID actually 2019, uh, because we were doing so well in the clinical trials, we thought that the technology was ready for the clinical practice for the hospitals. So we got our ISO and CE and 510K clearances by the FDA, et cetera. Um, and then we went into the hospitals and you see it's, it's very, very difficult to sell clinical software to hospitals. Uh, there's many, wow. many hoops you have to jump through and uh, probably, I don't know, maybe 50 to 100 people will have to say yes in order to get it through. And there's always wow. some people that don't really want it, which was kind of surprising for us a little bit because at the end of the day, um, the benefits of getting closer to the lung and having more information yeah. seems obvious. I mean, you have to rely on these derivative parameters. It's it's should be better to get closer to the source to better understand what's going on. Um, but the whole system, the healthcare system, and I think it's pretty similar in Europe and the US, is really not set up to change at all, to be honest. It's, it's so siloed. People mm-hmm. have their own uh, expertise. And just looking at multiple modalities, pulmonary function testing and imaging already creates a lot of um, challenges because it's pulmonology having to work with radiology and in, it's something Never that is new. exactly so it's it's quite challenging we're still working with these hospitals usually also somewhat in a, a research context but it's it's hard you see it across the board you see companies like Heartflow and others that uh, that are in, in in that space as well it's it's challenging so what is the feedback you'll get from folks? Is it, uh, we don't need this, it doesn't work, or we can't afford it, or D, all of the above? Which is it? They usually say, oh, it's amazing, it's a great tool for research, but um, since it's new, we don't really know what to do with it. Mm. For, for instance, if you tell a pulmonologist, okay, we can measure the airways and the blood vessels and the, the lungs, etc., the, the next question is, okay, so what? So, so what does this mean? Um, how do I treat, use this to treat the patients better? Um, hmm. And unless they kind of see that pathway for them, uh, if you go to the radiologist, they say, okay, why would I use it if the pulmonologist is not asking for it? Mm-hmm. So that's the, the challenges. So we're expecting a lot, I think too much probably from the current physicians. We are expecting them to be, okay, physicians, but at the same time, also technology assessors in order to move from being the conventional medical doctor to becoming, let's say, this technology-driven healthcare professional. And they're working for hospitals, and these hospitals are also not set up to assess technology. They're usually there to make sure the finances are optimized or whatever, the insurance companies are happy or whatever. Um, so you're in a, a system that is is really not well designed for innovation, especially clinical technical innovation. Very hard. Where is it easier? Is it easier here or is it easier in Europe? 
It's the same. Uh, and the reason for it is at the core, at the core these, even though the perception that uh, Europe and the US is very different, which to a certain level it is, but at the core, there's still two fee-for-service systems. So the insurance companies in Europe yeah. are usually single-payer system. Yeah, government. like a government or going to be the National Health Service. Yeah. So. Here, and here it's kind of it's more private, but it's still like, okay, you do something, you um, charge the insurance companies, they pay you X number of euros or dollars for your particular service. So, and that those... The, the amounts, the values for those services are also tailored towards high volumes. So I think a spirometry is maybe 50 bucks or something that mm-hmm. uh, is being reimbursed, which by itself is, is not a lot. But if you do many, then you have a, have a decent revenue. How much do you have like a chicken egg problem? Because I could see if you're in the hospitals, you can get the data that shows that it's beneficial. But in order to get, you know, that you know, but, but you need to get in the hospitals to get the data. You know, you need to have the data to, to, to get in, but you need to be there to get the data, basically. I think that is going to be the most crucial question for the next three to five years in the age of AI. Because, I mean, I'm sure you heard that uh, the New York Times sued OpenAI for copyright yeah. infringement. And it seemed a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's, it's very relevant for healthcare as well. Because I think that this will have a very chilling effect on the availability of healthcare data for any tech startup that wants to make some of these AI algorithms. Because if you start training these AI algorithms on data, the question will be not only is it anonymized data, but do you actually have the consent to use it to start building these models? Because that's at the crux of this whole OpenAI New York Times debate is if you, if you take something which is on the internet and you train models, is there um, some copyright that it's relevant? So your point about wow. the chicken and egg is, is absolutely relevant. So And that kind of brings us to our the next stage of, of what we're building now yeah i mean like when tom was filling me in on this sounded like you, you came up with a, a somewhat creative solution to this or, or yeah i think a creative solution um but i also think one that is i don't i don't see a lot of alternatives so we're doing uh, we're actually building a a network of uh, clinical centers uh, respiratory clinical centers. Um, so again, my, my dad, um, when he um, retired from the university, he started a, a cardiopulmonary rehabilitation clinic, not necessarily with the idea to um, to build AI models, but just somewhat to stay busy, but also to make sure that technology was at the core of this new new venture to improve clinical outcome, not optimize billing like it's typically the case in hospitals, but really optimize clinical outcome. So he started about two years ago in, in Belgium. And of course, he uses the Fluida technology, etc. So it's kind of a little bit of a pilot, um, but it worked so well. So we saw patients that usually ended up in the hospital three, four times a year actually stayed out of the hospital because you could targeted therapies using the imaging, and then you have um, advanced care, including rehabilitation. And the nice thing is it um, it's really structured around a platform that captures structured data in a very uh, longitudinal fashion. So if a patient comes through a rehabilitation program, they usually go there for two, three months, and they come two, three times a week. So you do certain tests, two, three times a week. So you have a very um, accurate 
assessment of how the patient is doing, also depending on what type of interventions you're doing, drugs, devices, rehabilitation programs, and so on. Wow. So, we, so I think about 12 to 18 months ago, we said, oh, it works really well, and it seems to be a great source for structured data. And around that time, ChatGPT was coming out, and the whole it was very clear that structured data was at the core of all these AI algorithms. So then we already said, okay, we're going to go out and, and raise a little bit of pre-seed money to start the first MedImprove, because that's the, that's the name of that company, MedImprove. We're going to start the first MedImprove office in the US, and we're doing that here in Atlanta. So I'm based in Atlanta. So um, we, uh, we closed the financing. We're setting up our first office, which will be operational over uh, the summer. So uh, mid-2024 will be operational here. Um, and the idea is that you need to have end-to-end -end control over the data. So you hmm. need, as a, let's say, a technology company, you need to be much more involved in the care delivery element, gathering the data, and then use that data to train these AI models and really become kind of a, a loop that reinforces itself. Um, so that is our solution of trying to overcome a massive problem, I think, that we will have in the current healthcare system. is not only the access to data, but also the quality of data. We've worked with a lot of centers, even the best ones in the world, and the yeah. data that you get is still suboptimal because it's real-world evidence data. It's not structured, to be honest. Um, so the quality data is an issue and the availability will be increasingly an issue, I think. Help me understand what these centers look like. So are we talking about a building, a self-standing building, independently standing building that, you, that you're renting or that you purchased and or is it a, in a strip mall or some office complex? And what is, what is going on inside? What services you provided are you providing and who... Who are your customers slash patients? Yeah. So um, the nice thing here, especially um, in the Atlanta area, is that you have a concentration of um, hospitals and also medical buildings. So uh, MedImprove here will be in one of those medical buildings that mm -hmm. is a collection of typically private clinics. Um, but in the vicinity wow. of hospitals like Emory, Piedmont, Northside. Um, so it's about 4,000 square foot um, center. And it's uh, designed that everything is on site. So the first thing, if a patient comes through the door, the first thing they obviously get is a CT scan so that we use the fluid technology to really understand what is the issue. Is it an airway issue or a vascular So why is, why is that, sorry to interrupt, but why is that patient come to you? The patient comes to us. Um, so we um, advertise towards patients with any type of respiratory condition. So um, we do, if, for instance, if we talk to patients with our Fluida hat on, the technology, they all say, oh, it's, it's amazing. Where can I get it? And then mm -hmm. you have to say, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's not, it, we try to get into the hospitals, but it's, it's the chicken and egg story. And now we have uh, an alternative. We can say, look, you can go to uh, MedImprove where this is really at the core of, uh, of what the offering is. That's how we do it in Belgium. And there we see a very nice increase in the number of patients that come through the door. So someone who, who's had difficulty breathing, they, they may have already gone to a pulmonologist. They're not getting the answers they want. 
and they say, I, I would like some more data. I'd like some more. I'd like a better understanding of what's going on. Exactly. That's, I mean, a nice example are long COVID patients. So yep. I mean, in the beginning, everybody yeah. thought they were kind of crazy because they couldn't walk up the stairs, etc. Um, and that's a typical patient that we see in Belgium. They went to, I don't know, five GPs and two uh, pulmonary doctors, etc. Nobody found anything. Um, and they come to us and then we see with our imaging that there is an abnormality specifically in the pulmonary vasculature. So, which you don't really see in the image, but if you quantify the image, the, it paints a very different picture. And then these patients are, it depends on the, the severity of the abnormality. So if it's still quite severe, they usually get uh, systemic steroids and then they're put on an, an exercise program, which is very well monitored with all the wearables and all that stuff. And we do see that these patients can actually improve quite substantially. So we had patients that couldn't even work. And then after, I think, two, three months, they went back to at least part-time, three, four days a week, uh, which was great because these patients are typically 30, 40-year-olds. So they're, they're not very old patients. So that was an example of a patient that really is not finding solutions in the conventional system where this technology-driven environment is really very beneficial. That's amazing. And just, uh, I, I interrupted you. So someone would come in, they get the, the, the we've, we've covered why, they come in, they get the CAT scan, what's next? What are the other services that, that you're offering there? So what is what is the, the conveyor belt look like? Yeah, so based on the CAT scan, we can make sure that they get the right drug in the right device um, to make sure that you send the right uh, drugs to the right areas in the lung. Uh, and then the next step is we combine the imaging with the more conventional testing, of course, including this pulmonary function test at the forced expiratory volume in one second. Uh, also, the cardiopulmonary exercise testing, which uh, really tells you how good the lung, the lung is exchanging oxygen from the atmosphere to the blood. So really, the, the, the gas transfer of the lung is very much quantified, which is another test that nobody really does in the hospital anymore because it's kind of 45 minutes, you have to deal with the patient. So it, it, it takes a little bit of time, but it's an extremely valuable test because it really tells you how well your lung is, is functioning. And so that's also combined with, uh, with imaging, with also sleep studies, ultrasound of the heart, so we also take into account what the heart is doing is also an important part. And that's all um, uh, collected in a structured platform. And then we have um, medical doctors. And that's another key element is that hmm. in our case, the medical doctor is being employed by the technology company. So you're turning the table. So instead of having a tech company trying to sell their technology to physicians in hospitals, you really create a high-tech environment where the technology is already there and you mm. attract healthcare professionals to come and work in that environment. So you don't expect them to assess technology or buy technology or fight their administrations for it. It's already there. You just show them how to use it. And then we know more and more um, what leads to most optimal clinical outcome. And that's kind of what the end goal is. The whole setup of MedImprove is optimized for clinical outcome and not for billing. So the, the, the doctors are working for MedImprove? Correct. Correct. Okay. Interesting. And in the U.S., the way you do it is called a... Um, so that's what telehealth companies do. So you have a, a service organization, which is kind of a tech company. And then you create a professional corporation that's owned by physicians, but there's an agreement between uh, the professional corporation and the, the, uh, the service organization. And that's the way you do it uh, uh, here. And it's, it's a very, I mean, it's 
takes a little bit of time to set it up, but it's perfectly legal. You can do it the way you want. Yeah, but and I'm how, sorry, what, how... What, sorry, Chris. Uh, one just in the doctors, they're pulmonologists, or are they they general? We have pulmonologists. Uh, we also work with cardiologists, and then the, the respiratory therapists. Those are probably the the most important ones because they they do most of the the interaction with the patient, uh, especially during the rehabilitation program. So we usually there's uh, two or three of those uh, per office. How are you handling reimbursement with this? Because I mean, insurers seem very hesitant to, to cover things that aren't usual, you know, that are, that seem extra to them. And that's, that's the other thing. So um, the other myth that I think is not exactly true is that um, what we hear as tech companies, if we go to the hospitals, there's no money there. I mean, this, this there, there's no money to pay for anything new at the same time, $4 trillion every year is spent on healthcare in the U S alone. So there is money. You just have to make sure the money is being used for the right things. And in our case, it's to, to um, promote or develop technology. If you have end-to-end control over the pathway using MedImprove, you tap into the existing CPT codes because you do the conventional things as well. You do the, the spirometry, you do the CT scan, uh, and you have a very good medical reason for doing it because it's all based on structured data. So these things are reimbursed and they do have margins. I mean, the margins might not be as huge as for, I don't know, lung transplant or open heart surgery, but you have margins. And then you can use those margins to develop the technology. So that's why you kind of use the fee-for-service system. And I think that's the other important thing. Eventually, we have to go for value-based healthcare. Eventually, it has to be such that you can predict what you need to do with a patient that your, let's say, a value-based system where you get a fixed amount per patient under management, that leads to a sustainable business model. If you do that too quickly, like we've seen with Canoe Health and Babylon Health and Pear Therapeutics, you all go out of business. What you need to do is, in our opinion, you need to embrace the fee-for-service system initially you figure out where technology really optimizes clinical outcome and really saves costs, and then you move to a value-based healthcare system. And that's what I think you can do if you're technology-driven and focused on a specific therapeutic area. Companies that say we do everything, general uh, practitioners, primary care, specialty care, I think you have to focus and then understand what your technology does and then um, move on. Well, it seems like your big, your big thing is the software, which, I mean, yeah, I mean, you have to pay computer programmers to, to make it, but uh, it, it's not like having a, a machine that you have to, like, build and maintain and, you know, and sterilize and all that. So 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 at least that that's, like, something that you can add on to all this stuff that, you know, it sounds like you, insurers will pay for, that if you're, you know, r- you know running a clinic that's – you can get a network and – you know, provide these services that you usually get at a rehab place. This this software is this extra thing that they get when they come in that really gives the insight so you can get better results. Exactly. And I think so. I mean, insurance is one way of, of making revenue, of course. But for these clinical centers, you also kind of optimize them to do clinical trials. Because that's the other okay. thing we do with that. We do a lot of clinical trials. So we go to hospitals, we train them on how to take the CT scans properly. And then you realize that these hospitals are absolutely not set up to enroll patients. So pharma wow. companies have to spend an enormous amount of money 
just to get yeah a, a modest amount of patients in their clinical trials. So if you have a, a network of clinical centers, you can also tap into that, especially if it's optimized for that. And then, of course, the data, right? So data is the other uh, part where if it's high-quality structured data, that's where a lot of the value can be created. So even if you can, let's say, be break-even with your um, conventional reimbursement, you still have the other streams that really create the margins going forward. Wow. Final question or area of questions for me is, is are your uh, investors and just sort of the company itself. So up until now, you've been primarily a traditional kind of tech, med tech company, tech company working within med tech. You're moving into running centers, bricks and mortar. Um, what, what sort of investors did you have before? Were they just traditional VC investors? And who is backing this effort now? Because I could see a lot of VC investors saying, whoa, 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 like I'm not a REIT. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a venture capital firm. Exactly. Uh, how, how, what's that transition been like for them? Yeah, we were quite lucky to, that we um, were able to um, fund our growth fairly organically. So also from Fluida side, we, um, for I think 13 years, we grew organically. We didn't have any external capital. We raised oh, wow. a little bit of capital, but that was more of a, let's say, um, seed rounds, um, with not the not not VCs, but more like friends, family rounds, um, and we're doing a sa- the same approach for MedImprove. Where we're lucky that the the investors that invested in Fluida are also investing in MedImprove, so you kind of have cap tables that look uh, very similar. But you're right. I think if you if you present MedImprove to VCs, they say, yeah, but this is a this is a network of typical clinical practices. That's not something we think is is quite scalable. Um, so that's not in our business model, which I understand. But I also see at the same time, you see very few success stories in healthcare with a typical VC money, a, t- a VC model where you spend a lot of money mm-hmm. in a short period of time and you hope you have market adoption and then you go viral. I haven't seen many of those successes in digital health at all. So I don't think the typical VC model works in healthcare that well. So you have to kind of think outside of the box. So I do think a combination of brick and mortar with a digital solution to to have an end-to-end control over the data, I think that that is that should be a successful model, and, that, and that's what we're trying to pursue. That that does feel like more of a traditional service kind of clinic sort of sort of startup, um, or at least it's been done in the past. So where do you go, go from here? I mean, do you see an opportunity where you've got this, you'll have, well, you have two companies, like two centers. So I guess you have a network, but as it grows and as you, do you see yourself bringing in more technologies from others from outside that are centered around pulmonology, uh, more devices, more diagnostics and sort of just building sort of a respiratory oriented network? Where, where What's the future look like? Yeah, for and, sure. I think. And, and, and within that answer, I just want to be clear. MedImprove and Fluida are two different companies, two different entities, or are they the same entity or two entities within the same organization? No, so there are two entities. So Fluida mm-hmm. is a tech company and then MedImprove okay. is the care delivery data company. Uh, the cap tables are similar, but they're, they're different companies. To the point earlier, because they, they are actually their services are very different. Um, so going forward, yes, I do think that um, if you have 
if MedImprove works, if you can create these high-tech environments that are scalable, that are um, that you can make profitable within, let's say, a year or two, you can you it can become a testing ground for a lot of digital health technologies, wearables, but also things like cardiovascular, the, the neuro side, because. Eventually, the future, I think we have to step away from sick care because we have sick care now, right? So you, you, only, you only make money of the, currently if people are sick, but we have to move from sick care to health care. And that is broad, like it's mental health, it's respiratory health, it's dietary approaches, etc. And the system is very reactive right now. It's about patching people when they get you know, wheeled in from, from a crash or, you know, or when they, you know, all of a sudden develop a serious health problem. Exactly. And I think the hospitals, I mean, they're still, they're also set up for acute and emergency care. And I think they do a good job there and they'll, they'll continue to do that. But I think outside of that, we have to find a way to, to make sure medical technology becomes more available for individuals because now it's all locked up in these hospitals, right? Where it could be of much better use uh, for people to be used before they get to a very um, severe level of sickness. And I think that's where these, let's say, chronic care um, outpatient settings like MedImprove can evolve towards, let's say, a really healthcare focused where this type of technology is much more broadly available. So you can prevent the disease rather than, yeah, try to cure it when it's already fairly advanced. That's great. And just final big picture question, as I mentioned up top, there's been a lot of movement in the respiratory space for, for innovation, for new tech coming in. Certainly COVID accelerated that. You've been on, uh, you've had a front row seat to all of you. You've been on the playing field as well. Do you, which, how do you assess the, uh, the, the respiratory innovation uh, uh, opportunities now in the movement in the space now? And what do the next five years look like? I, f- I feel like because of COVID and, and other factors that this is space, a space that's going to draw a lot more attention. I agree. I think the, we started out by discussing that the actual diagnostics are from the 60s, pretty much 60s and 70s. Yeah. And I think that creates a massive opportunity. I think um, respiratory um, has been a little bit behind, I think, in terms of um, advanced diagnostics specifically. I think we have an opportunity to really catch up here. Um because the, the chronic care element is so important. There's, I think, 110 million people in the U.S. and Europe suffering from some sort of respiratory conditions. It's 100 billion in direct costs. Uh, so it is a, is a massive market. Um, so I do think that the new technology um, applied in the right care delivery setting, very importantly, can unlock unprecedented improvement in clinical outcome and reduction in costs. And I think we'll see in the next three to five years, these applications will come out and we'll see, I think, a a drastic improvement in the condition for these patients, which, especially for CPD patients, their quality of life is very poor. And I think there's definitely some things we can do to improve that. And uh, that will, at the same time, lower the cost. Fantastic. If folks want to find out more uh, about the company and and follow you somewhere, where where can they find out about MedImprove and about Fluida? And uh, what, what social media sites are you uh, hunting nowadays? So LinkedIn is probably the, the one that has most of the, uh, the information, the posts. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn, very active. Uh, Fluida, 
uh, is a website, fluida.com. Uh, and then MedImprove is still a little bit in stealth mode, but uh, over the next few weeks and months, we'll be uh, providing much more information. So anybody who is interested, you can already go to LinkedIn, fluida.com, and stay tuned for uh, MedImprove. Great. Well, this has been it's a fantastic. great conversation. It was much easier to hear you here than in the uh, in the cocktail party that we were talking <laughs> at at JP Morgan. So uh, I've definitely picked up a lot more. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for joining us. John. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing what you're doing. So thanks for having me. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jan DeBacker. Uh, once again, you can find him on LinkedIn. Fluida is spelled F L U I D D A. Next up. Got Scott Nelson from Fastwave. Again, I screwed up the audio on this. Uh, I'm getting better at it. I I hope I don't do it again. So a thousand apologies, but uh, Scott was great. And I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation. Again, Scott will be at Device Talks Boston. Registration is open. Go to boston.devicetalks.com. Well, Scott Nelson, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, great to be on, Tom. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Have you been on a podcast before, Scott? Uh, I have. I have. <laughs> I, I've, I've been on the other side of the table many times. I've listened to yours on too many occasions to, to count. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to be on the show. We'll get into how you got into MedTech conversation in a moment, but just tell folks about, about MedSider. I, we were talking before this, and I've, I've known you've been doing it for a very long time, but I had no idea how early you started. When did you start the, uh, the MedSider podcast? Well, I started it when I was six years old, Tom. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, no, j- joking aside, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a podcast OG. Um, you know, so I've had I've had the MedSider podcast for almost 15 years now, which I'm totally dating myself. And we're obviously recording this on, on video so you can see the gray in my sideburns. But uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting story. I mean, I, I spent my entire career in MedTech and early on, I really got into podcasting. And this was back when you know, the only way to consume podcasts was on, you know, using the, the Apple podcast app, you know, that was on the iPhone. There weren't, Spotify wasn't, wasn't around, you know, there weren't any other apps to use. But I was really fascinated by all of these startup devices that, I, that I'd see, right, in cath labs and ORs, et cetera. And I, I always had, you know, this question of like, where, where do they come from, right? Where do these, how do these companies come to, come to be? Where do these devices come from? What's sort of the inception, et cetera. And there was, at the time, you know, when it was recording podcasts or, you know, especially startup podcasts around med tech. And so I like, uh, you know, I thought, well, why don't I just start it? Why don't I start, start, start doing these, these types of interviews? And so, so yeah, the frequency of, of my podcasting efforts over the years have kind of ebbed and flowed, but I've probably been especially more consistent over the past maybe handful of years doing, doing MedSider. And what, and what was the uh, initial response of folks that you talked to in 2010 about doing a podcast? Did they, <laughs> did they have any idea what you're talking about? And and why, other than you enjoy doing it, which and you clearly have a, a, a gift for the conversation, what, how did it help you in your career? Was that part of the goal? Were you trying to get something business-oriented? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So, so the, the short answer to that question is, is yes, and I'll probably explain it in a little bit more detail. But yeah, the, to, to answer your first question, yeah, a, a lot of probably challenges early on trying to get people to to record an interview. You know, um, yeah, and sure. Then, you know, there are a lot, a lot of questions around that. I think as podcasting has, has become you know more popular the years, it's definitely you know a little bit more mainstream. Maybe not not as much still. Kind of to my surprise in, in med tech, but I think you know with your efforts with with others that do podcasts, I think it's it's becoming a little bit more more normalized. But yeah, cer- certainly kind of. Uh, some some hurdles uh, early on for sure, but with respect to like kind of what what I've gained out of it is I mean a, a tremendous amount. Not only just on on a personal level, just like you know honing your ability to to ask questions and to have you know hold a conversation and to 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 go deeper on certain topics. 
But even more so, it's allowed me to connect with, you know, a number of really, really phenomenal, you know, medtech entrepreneurs that are much wiser than me and have learned a lot more over the years. And to be able to kind of have an hour to pick their brains and, you know, selfishly learn a lot, but also, you know, to kind of spread those insights and those learnings kind of throughout the, the space has been pretty, pretty rewarding over the years, you know, definitely worth the effort. That's great. No, it's really, it's an honor to have license to go talk to the smartest people in your industry and really, as you said, pick their brains and, and learn from them and they, and they get so willingly. So I, I know I get that out of these conversations. And like you said, I think just having to formulate these discussions and come up with questions helps me in everyday life now when I try to articulate points or, or, or raise questions. So it's truly uh, something that's added a lot to my life as well. I'm impressed that you started early. I started in 2014, so you were already a, a graybeard by the time I got involved with podcasts. But here we are today, still both going strong. What drove you into the, the medtech industry? Let's get into that question. Yeah, so I, I've spent really my entire career um, outside of a outside of um, you know the, the very early years post undergrad. I've really spent my entire professional career in medtech, primarily the the cardiovascular space. And if you want to kind of double click more, more so the, the peripheral uh, vascular arena specifically. Predominantly kind of on the commercial side. So the first half of my device career was with large strategic. So I spent a little bit of time with Bard PV early on, which is now Becton Dickinson, a short cup of coffee at Boston Scientific, and then actually came into Covidian through their acquisition of Bacchus Vascular. Oh, okay. uh, which was a, a Tom Fogarty company. Um, yeah. I like to say it was is uh, I was I was in the thrombectomy space before the thrombectomy space was popular. <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah, that, that was a fun experience. And then actually that that led uh, I ended up staying staying on board with Covidian longer than anticipated, primarily because of the the opportunities to kind of move, move in house up to Minneapolis and gain a lot of experience in a wide variety of roles. That you know I think most people get the opportunity to go in in house, so to speak. You know if leveraged properly, it's a really really phenomenal learning experience professionally. But uh, but really really ever since then, so almost. almost Almost for the better part of a decade, I've kind of spent time on the on the opposite side of the spectrum, really in the, in the startup world with early stage companies. So, spent a little bit of time with a London-based digital health company called Touch Surgery or Digital Surgery, which exited to, Met, to Medtronic. Yeah, um, I, t- I talked to I, them I found- for Medtronic Talks podcast. They were a big part of Medtronic's plans going forward. So that was an interesting group. I was surprised to see that on your LinkedIn portfolio. Like, holy moly! Use with time. Like continue, <laughs> yeah, right. sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that, and it, and those those types of experiences, even though it was a reasonably short period of time, I mean, it's just the ability to kind of work and operate with some really great entrepreneurs, you know, doctors uh Jean Nime and Andre Chow. Jean's still very active in the in the startup space. And so just fun to fun to keep those connections alive. Yeah, and then and then really 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 since then I I started a company called Juve which was my really my first foray outside of the, the cardiovascular space. We developed and commercialized a class two device, but did it entirely online, direct to consumer within the kind of the health and wellness or longevity space. And that was really, really phenomenal experience. Got to flex some muscles that maybe I, I wouldn't have otherwise been able to kind of exercise in traditional med tech. So did that for uh, almost a handful of years. Uh, and then really for the past close to three years now, I've spent most of my time focused on, on Fastwave. That's amazing. So circling back to your time at Covidian, I'm curious as to what a person who has spent the most of his most of his career in startups and small companies and had done that prior to joining Covidian, what did you find appealing about the big company experience? What lessons were you trying to learn and what boxes were you sort of trying to check? How did it help you? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and it's probably one that like if people listening to this are like, wait a second, you actually liked your experience inside a big <laughs> exactly. company, right? And, you know, yeah. Most people think of like, you know, the, the layers of bureaucracy, et cetera. But if you're pro, one of the things that I, I talk to like, you know, folks that are a little bit younger in their careers is like, if you get that opportunity to spend time in a large strategic, you know, take full advantage because th- there's there's so many different roles, functions, et cetera, that you can touch, again, if you're proactive about it. And so when I had the opportunity to go kind of from field-based kind of sales and sales management in-house um, into product marketing and then marketing, 
that type of role inside a large strategic, you touch so many different other aspects from you know sales training to clinical affairs to medical affairs to R and D, et cetera. And again, the, the ability to not only meet a lot of a lot of different folks, build relationships with them, but also experience and, and really kind of get your hands sort of operationally in different sort of departments and functions is, is really invaluable. And you know, looking back, it's no doubt definitely some frustrating experiences, right? You know, most people understand that large strategics, you know, you know tend to move pretty slowly and, and and methodically, and you know, right rightfully so. It's just a different beast altogether. But but also at the same time, if kind of proactive about your career, you it really affords you, you know, some really unique uh, opportunities. And then I'm guessing that the type of people you're engaging with, engage with, their experience, they've been doing it for a long time. They're, they're, they've got a, a deep pool of knowledge that you're, you're able to tap into. Yeah, yeah. And one of, one of the things, I mean, it, this, was, this was kind of advice that I received like back, gosh, probably close to 10 years ago, maybe more than that, when I, when I sort of went, quote unquote, in-house was the, you know, someone I think much wiser than me said, like, Scott, do your best to kind of proactively reach out to different leaders within these departments. And just meet with them, right? Like try make a concerted effort to never have lunch alone, never have breakfast alone, whatever, to try to meet and connect with various people. And and at the time, Covidian was, you know, they, they were kind of moving from, you know, kind of like a very highly focused kind of surgical play into the vascular arena. And so there was a lot of moving parts, a lot of movement. You know, it's a very interesting time to be there. You know, it was was afforded again the opportunity to kind of meet and connect with a lot of people that that are no longer there, right? But but you know, mo- most of most of those those folks I've, I've stayed in touch with over the years. And what was it that told you it was time to to get back into a startup? <laughs> well, I've, I've always been biased towards towards the world of startups, and you know, have had a bit of a you know kind of an entre- entrepreneurial bent since I can remember, and uh, have always have always wanted to you know the ability to kind of you know join a startup, and that's what we talked a little bit about. Touchers, there's a number of different opportunities that I was I was evaluating, and um, have also always kind of had had this bent towards kind of you know digital and kind of learning a little bit more about that that side of the equation, how that fits into into traditional med tech, and so. Again, one of those opportunities that, that kind of presented itself, the timing made sense for me personally. And, and, and again, it was a great group of people that were running touch surgery at the time, you know, doctors uh, Jean Neme and Andre Chow, and just the ability to, to kind of get in early and, uh, and be, be, you know, operationally involved with, uh, with, it, with a great team is like that, that can't be underappreciated for anyone that's looking at a, at a startup. Interesting. And you talked about you were a co-founder. What was, your, uh, what was your title there? Did you lead the company? Yeah, I led, I led the company. Yeah, yeah. And that, that was a really unique experience with Juve. And it was a kind of a classic startup story in the sense that at the time, this was kind of back in 2015. I'll touch on this briefly just because it's such an interesting story. We were in Minneapolis. This was during the dearth of winter. And uh, my wife purchased a quote unquote red light therapy package at a local spa in Minneapolis. And, you know, she's always been a little bit more open to kind of natural health, holistic health, you know, longevity kind of practices or treatments. And she really liked it. You know, wanted to re-up her the, you know, the package she had purchased, but it was kind of cumbersome to have to go to a you know a spa multiple times per week, and you know she was looking for something to use at home. And at the time, you know, if you did a Google search around you know quote unquote red light therapy, it was impossible to find any information, right? I mean, oh. basically get a, a laundry list of PubMed results. The therapy is quite popular. Uh, I would like to say, you know, I'd like to think that we had something to do with it, but at the time, it was really hard to kind of you know piecemeal this this stuff together. And there were certainly no, no products available that were you know really designed to be used at home. And so, you know, kind of, you know, again, kind of speaks to a little bit more of my entrepreneurial bias. It seemed like there was a potential market there, right? Science to support the therapy. No one's really talking about it online. Definitely no really brands or, or products that are meant to be used at home. And so uh, t- took a swing, uh, kind of on a whim. 
in early, I think 2016 now, if my memory serves me correctly. And um, the company ended up taking off like a rocket ship, ended up doing the classic kind of uh, triple, triple, double, double in the world of, of VCs, you're right, where we tripled our, our top line revenue two years in a row and then doubled it two years in a row. And so it went from, you know, zero to well into the nine figures in, in, in revenue entirely online, you know, direct to mm-hmm. consumer without a sales force. And so wow. really interesting, really interesting uh, story and allowed me to kind of really, really gain some unique experiences kind of in that in that world. Uh, one, one interesting story, Tom, which you might appreciate as a sports fan is um, when Tiger won the last Masters, the therapy juice specifically really started taking off within the professional sports arena. And at Augusta, you know, during that weekend, they, they had a, a quote unquote, you know, juve room. And so they were using all of our gear. And so I, I've got some, I've got some some pictures of like you know these these rooms that were being lit up with with red light. And uh, you know Tiger loved the therapy so much that like literally on on the Monday I think Monday or Tuesday following his win, like we got an order you know from from Tiger Woods. So you know so weird to see that that name you know come through uh, you know on your on your e commerce platform. But uh, you know a lot, lot of lot of fun stories like that. So it was a really really unique experience. And, and how is that uh, supposed to affect the body? What what benefit does it provide? I guess at a high level, wavelengths of light delivered with certain dosages of, of energy have a pretty unique cellular effect. And, and in essence, they help modulate the cellular activity, more, more, more so mitochondria within your cells to produce more ATP energy. So a lot of times, like this, this type of therapy is used for recovery, skin benefits, wound healing, et cetera. We kind of commercialized the technology specifically for kind of anti-aging and longevity. And so, you know, we worked with a lot of, you know, mainstream health influencers. I guess mainstream now, right? Back then they weren't necessarily mainstream, but you know, people like Andrew Huberman, who's quite well known, you know, Joe Rogan, you know, Ben Greenfield, Dave Asprey, you know, the list goes on and on. But yeah, that's kind of where we marketed and positioned the, the devices for. Really interesting. All right. Well let's get into into fast wave medical. We were talking about the IBL space. We're gonna have you at Device Talks Boston in May as part of a panel. Really excited to to have that discussion there. How did you come to co-found and lead Fastwave, maybe talk us through the career steps that got you here. Yeah, yeah. So I, I this, you know, I'll, I'll circle back around to kind of mid 2020 when we started working on on the project. And I say the project because it wasn't really a company at the time. But we we sort of our our founding team had two kind of fundamental beliefs. One is that I didn't say beliefs. That's probably not the best way to describe it. But one was a belief that the utilization of of, of IVL or intravascular lithotripsy would continue to increase. This was before Shockwave's, uh, Shockwave Medical's PMA, coronary PMA. So okay. had, I, I would say Shockwave hadn't really taken off to the degree it has uh, now. And so we had a belief that, that again, the utilization of IVL would, would only expand. And then secondarily, we were keeping a kind of a close eye on CSIs or cardiovascular systems IPR efforts. And when the USPTO overwhelmingly ruled in favor of CSI, we, we thought that was kind of a classic why now moment for us to get, you know, hmm. pursue, pursue this project with a little bit more, a little bit more rigor. And so started prototyping the back half of 2020, ended up spinning the company <clears> out as a, as a standalone Delaware C-Corp in early 21. And really, um, ever since then, has, have been heads down developing our intravascular lithotripsy systems, ended up raising a, a Series A in August of 21. And then raised another kind of private placement earlier last year, I guess, in, in the summer of, uh, of 2023. Have been moving, I would say, pretty quickly, all things considered in comparison to, to, to most startup companies in the cardiovascular space. Yeah. No, talk, so talk a bit about your, your technology. What is your approach and how does it differ from, from others? Yeah. So we're, uh, we're developing, um, I would say, uh, a peripheral IVL platform that's um, utilizing uh, a similar mechanism of action as, as Shockwave. It's electric-based. And designed to really solve for what we consider the kind of the key gaps in Shockwave's platform, and and I, and I say this because you know Shockwave has done a phenomenal job. It's it's you know they've taken a technology you know invented by Todd Todd Britton and and, and Dan Hawkins and done an amazing job. So so credit to their team. But 
you know, I think there's there's room for, for multiple players in the space. And uh, I think the advantage, right, to the end user, you know, hospitals, physicians, patients, et cetera, when there's more more players in the space, um, I think it pushes everyone, right, to be to be better. And so, you know, we're developing with our with our peripheral electric system, we're trying to solve for some of those some of those clear gaps that we that we believe based on physician feedback should be addressed with with, with IVL. Now, having said that, we also are developing a, a next-gen IVL system as well. That's that's you know rooted in a different energy platform, different mechanism of action that we we feel solves for a lot of the inherent kind of technical constraints that come with an electric-based system. And so that next-gen platform, we're really excited about as well. You know, it's it's a um, not quite as far along, right? Because you know, I think there's probably a, a more significant R and D lift uh, earlier on uh, in, in in the project. But really feel good about where we're at. Talk about the, the clinical need. What is IVL go? What is IVL treating? What are you going after? And give us a sense of the, the, the scope of the problem that we currently. Yeah, the history of the utilization of IVL is is really to, to solve for you know complex peripheral and coronary artery disease. So you know if you're not familiar with the space, it's I uh, think about a a clogged pipe right that's burdened with uh, blockages. In this case, you know calcific plaque. And the end goal for an interventional cardiologist, you know, that's working on, you know, coronary applications or peripheral applications, re- regardless of what you're trying to do, you're, you want to open up the pipe. However, historically, it's been really difficult to open up the pipe when there's heavy uh, calcific disease within that within the pipe or within the blood vessel. And, and there's various modalities, right, that solve for this issue. Balloon angioplasty, of course, stents, atherectomy, specialty balloons, et cetera. But they all have their challenges, especially with complex calcium. And so this is where the, you know, really the, the magic of IVL comes from, the ability to deliver it through an easy-to-use you know, balloon catheter, yet effectively modify calcium, get, this, get this, this calcium, these calcium blockages, so to speak, to crack and become more compliant in a very safe and easy-to-use way is, is, is really you know, holds, a lot of, holds a lot of promise. Uh, and, and it's one of the reasons you know, Shockwave has done so well. It's, 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 it's very easy to use. For most physicians, it doesn't come with the technical burden of you know that 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 you often see with with atherectomy. The fact that it's easy to use, it's it's very efficacious, it's 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 incredibly safe. All of those reasons kind of ladder up to the realization that IVL is um, has really really taken off and become kind of part of a a default protocol for most uh, most interventionalists. But we expect it to only only increase from here. So I want to I want to get into how you're looking at the market uh, that the market that Shockwave has been at least the leader of right now and is dominating, but. There's a number of startups that are moving into the space, and I'm always fascinated by those attempts to, to sort of either unseat or at least complement a leader in a specific therapeutic category. But I, I want to first get into the funding of FastWave. You, you've raised some money over a couple of years when it's been difficult to raise money. We had COVID. There was a, not necessarily a slowdown, in, and actually there was an increase in, in financing at the time, but it's never easy to raise money. Talk about the first round and, and the second round. What were some of the, the tricks of the trade that you used that uh, allowed you to get FastWave up and running in, in a relatively short amount of time? And you're looking at what, year three now? Year, year three and a half? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're really only two years kind of post-significant okay. uh, infusion of capital, but almost close to three years since really kind of formal inception of the company. Circle back around to kind of 2021 timeframe. I mean, to your point, Tom, I mean, you, you know this more than most. Fundraising is, is never easy, even in a decent economy. You know, it's, it's like, you know, I always like to use the analogy, um, you know, doing startups in, in med tech is like playing the game on hard mode. You know, um, but but also it's also very rewarding, right? I mean, you're you're doing a startup. You're not you know making a really cool T-shirt. You're typically building something that has a has a pretty dramatic impact on on someone's life. So 2021, that was our Series A, and we we sort of bypassed kind of the traditional kind of you know pre-seed seed rounds because up until that point we had funded the company entirely ourselves. 
which I, again, I think is a, a bit of a unique advantage in the sense that we're using our own money in, the, in those early days. So you're a little bit, little bit more cognizant of kind of where you spend it and, and, and not being you know, overly uh, wasteful, uh, so to speak. And so I ended up raising a, a Series A. We went straight to our Series A round of, a round of financing. And I think one of the unique things that we did or our approach to, to our Series A was um, we, we approached you know, traditional VCs that invest at that sort of stage, but we also approached a lot of strategics. And I think that was to our advantage and ended up raising that Series A entirely from a, a strategic. And so, and that, that approach comes with its pros and cons, just like anything else. But I think it did help us close that reasonably quickly. And so that was probably one of the, one of the keys to success with that, that Series A round. And then since then, raised what I kind of consider almost an extension of our Series A in the summer of, of 2023. And probably what's what's most unique about that particular raise is that we raised us uh, quite a bit of capital. I mean, it was close to eight million dollars in capital, but we did it in less than a month. Close to eight, you said? Yeah, close to eight million dollars in okay. capital, and, mm-hmm. and we we uh, we raised it in less than a month. Which again, if you think about summer of two thousand twenty three, that, yeah, that's not that that is exceptionally difficult time to, to raise capital. But even even maybe more compelling, a very significant allocation of that capital came from uh, cardiovascular KOLs. And so these are physicians that not only have a deep understanding of IBL, but they feel like maybe they missed out a little bit on the ability to kind of maybe invest in, in Shockwave earlier on uh, hmm. in, in that company's life cycle. And so they felt like um, IBL is here to stay. They want to see more companies involved. And you know, they, they, they wrote sizable checks to Fastwave, you know, I think because of the, the speed at which we're operating, as well as the uh, kind of the multiple systems that we're, we're developing. And so that, that, was really, that was really rewarding, quite honestly, to have you know, very well-known physicians write checks, you know, personal checks out of their accounts, right, into a startup med tech company. So it's, it's very, like, we're extremely grateful to have so many really, really good, uh, good physicians to that not only taken sort of a bet on us, but that we, we intend to kind of work closely with moving forward. Are you able to identify the strategic that first invested? Yeah, in our Series A, it was, yeah. um, it was a company called East Ocean Medical, which is a, a venture capital subsidiary of Grand Pharma, which okay. is an Asian, uh, publicly traded Asian, uh, Asian company. Yeah, and they, they invest out of their, their Hong Kong uh, subsidiary. So what would you recommend to other startups raising money directly from KOLs? What, what does it give you? What doesn't it give you? Do you feel like you, you need to have a more institutional VC part of your, not only your investor base, but perhaps uh, on your board and, and providing that sort of advice? What has this formulation of, of investors given you? And would you recommend someone follow a similar path? Yeah, yeah. So I say I'd say first to kind of it's, it's a great question, and and I love having these types of discussions because I think they're they're helpful for other you know other startup entrepreneurs. But I think the onus on us, right, founders, CEOs that are running startups in these times, you have to go far and wide in terms of raising capital. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're just reaching out to traditional VCs, not that that's a bad approach, but you're, I mean, it, that's just a limited play. And you know, in this type of fundraising environment, you just need to go far and wide and, and keep all of your options open. Open. So I would say that first and for, first and foremost, you, you know, that that's uh, I would encourage any anyone listening to try to take take that effort on. It's a lot more work. There's no doubt, right? But that's part of the game. Uh, you know, uh, it's a, you, you got to have a lot, lot of conversations, no doubt. To answer your other question uh, with respect to um, to getting physician KOLs involved, it, it's been an unbelievable experience for us, you know. And so I, I would say it, it's incredibly advantageous to have what I consider, you know, v- very smart money in the sense that no, are they professional investors, so to speak? No, but they're very smart because they understand acutely like where this technology fits. They're obviously, you know, very very helpful, you know, in terms of you know when when we run into in, into questions that need to be answered, etc. So it's been it's been very advantageous. Now, having said that we go into this eyes wide open, right? Like if we're running a clinical trial and the only 
sites that we have are in, you know positions that have invested in Fastwave. That's obviously not a, not a smart play. We would never do that, right? So the onus on, is on us as a, as a company to kind of manage that appropriately moving forward. But it, it's it's a phenomenal opportunity, right? To have again some of the really really renowned thought leaders in the space that really deeply understand the disease state, the technology, how it how it works versus other other modalities, et cetera. It's it's, it's really really helpful, um, and and will will only be uh, beneficial for us us moving forward. Terrific. And, and final couple of questions. Well, looking forward, uh, I referenced earlier, you know, you're, you're entering a market where there is a clear leader. I wonder how smaller companies like yours plan to, to enter this market to compete with bigger players to, to find their own niche. What, 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 what advice would you give? Well, maybe you're not at the advice stage yet because you're just doing it. What is your own strategy as to how you find your way into this, uh, into this market? Yeah, uh, well, it's it's no, I mean, it's, it's not for the faint of heart, right? I mean, again, <laughs> Shockwave has has done a phenomenal job. Kudos to their to their company. We, I, I personally know a lot of people there. Folks, folks within our ecosystem or Fastwave ecosystem certainly have a lot of a lot of contacts at Shockwave. So again, kudos to their team. But I, I would say Fastwave. You know, we name the company by intention, right? Fast, and so. Speed across every sort of function is, is really what what we're optimizing for, and I think is going to be crucial for any startup, but especially in a very hot market like like IVL, you don't want to be fifth, sixth, seventh to the space. And so, I definitely think there's room for for multiple players. We're certainly optimizing for speed. Now, outside of that, I think with what we're developing, it'll be compelling, right? It'll be a, it'll be a compelling alternative to Shockwave. And I, and again, I think it's good for the market, right? I mean, there's no doubt physicians over and over again have told us they they want to see more players. They want to see more more tools being developed. It forces everyone in the space to to just do better, to, to move faster, to do better, to think more creatively. And so I think it's overall, it's going to be a good thing. Does Shockwave want more competition? My, my hunch is probably no, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but, you know but, it's, but it's coming, you know, so. <laughs> well, that's, that's great. No, it's a great story. Again, I'm glad you're going to be at Device Talks Boston, and I'm glad we finally had a chance to talk. I'm, I'm, I've got a, a little starstruck talking to somebody who's been doing a podcast. podcasts. For, for, <laughs> this is not easy to do. To do one weekly for, for over a decade, it's crazy impressive. So uh, where can folks find MedSider? I'm sure you're everywhere you need to be. Yeah, well, I, pr- I appreciate that. No, I mean, and the and the and the the sentiment is, is shared. You're really good at what you do. It's not easy. I mean, I mean, that's coming from someone who's who's done it for a number of years now. It's not. You make it look easy. Kudos to you. I love your show, and I like what you guys do. You guys bring a, a lot of nice energy to the table. You know what I mean? So yeah, avid listener myself, and so the kudos go both ways. <laughs> yeah, kind to you. K- kind of you to say. And uh, and Medsider, you're available in every major podcast player. Yada yada. I'm sure, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. If if you're into startups and, and kind of like understanding kind of where where these things come from, how companies are built, that's kind of what I, I do these podcasts for. And it's it's something I've done sort of always on the side. I mean, I, I don't really intend to monetize it. It's uh, you know, I've got enough of a process now where uh, it doesn't really take up a lot, a lot of my time. But it, it, it's it's really really fun to not only learn myself, like I mentioned before, uh, tremendous learning opportunity. But secondarily, it's really fun to share the stories of other other people that are building in the space. You know, as you as you well know, building a startup in med tech is exceptionally hard. Probably one of the toughest verticals there there are. And for people that are doing it, if you kind of strike out or fail, like kudos to you. And I think more more of those stories need to need to be shared. You know, to encourage others to build in this in the space. Absolutely. All right. Well, this has been fun. Great talking to you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. All right, well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Please do subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network. That way you can get future episodes of this podcast and our other eight podcasts. Yes, we got nine podcasts. So uh, we're going to run them through the podcast network 
to some extent, some will go off on their own channels. I'm trying not to flood you with great med tech content if that is a problem. Is that a problem? I'd actually love to know if that's a problem. If you feel flooded, if you feel overwhelmed by awesome medical device content, please uh, let me know on LinkedIn. Uh, that would be great because I'm, I'm honestly going to try to put together some kind of survey together just to make sure we're doing this the right way. Uh, so yeah, please do uh, subscribe to the Device Talks podcast, podcast network, Device Talks podcast network. Please do share this episode episode on uh, social media. And when you do, tag me, tag Device Talks, tag Chris Newmarker, tag Mass Device, tag the guest if you'd like, and uh, we'll have a, a romping good time talking about MedTech. Chris Newmarker is Chris as in a new marker. Uh, follow him on LinkedIn, connect with him on LinkedIn. He is the editor, executive editor of Life Sciences here at WTWH Media, which owns Device Talks and Mass Device. And he's also the grand poobah for Mass Device and medical design and outsourcing. So Chris is posting great content all the time. And uh, he is a really, really, really good med tech follow. So please connect with me, with him, and of course, Kayleen Brown, our managing editor. She'll be uh, sharing a lot of great insights, uh, a lot of great podcasts and content from Device Talks and information about Device Talks Boston as well. So again, Device Talks Boston registration is open. Go to devicetalks.com or boston.devicetalks.com if you want to uh, check out the uh, preliminary agenda. Register now. It's going to be totally worth it. I promise. Uh, I've got finalizing names, getting headshots, but uh, we wanted to get out in front of you as soon as possible. And uh, it's going to be a great couple of days. Uh, so much going on. MedTech Innovator. Uh, we'll have a new uh, a new engineering forum. We'll be uh, hearing from uh, really smart folks <laughs> who know who know how to do stuff like this. And actually, a couple of cool other little uh, little surprises on the expo floor. And as I mentioned up at the top, some uh, cool networking opportunities as well. So, uh, all right, folks. Well, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We'll, we'll we will be back next week with a Device Talks Weekly episode. Uh, have a great weekend, week, or day, whatever segment of time you'd like to use. Take care, everybody. Yeah.